This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Well, as Gordon McDonald was saying earlier, some of the busiest people in the country today are pollsters. They are out there calling people, reaching out online, trying to get their assessment. If they watched the debate yesterday, how do they feel about it? Well, we are going to do our own version of that. We're going to get you to participate in this, though. Of course, that's our hot question of the day. We want to know, did that televised debate yesterday help you decide which party to vote for? Do you say yes, it was enlightening or no, it was pointless. So far, all I've heard from people is that it was pointless or that it kind of reinforced what they were already feeling about this election. There seems to be just a lot of inertia, right? Just everybody just still in the same position or same feeling that they were four weeks ago before we started this thing. But let's hear what you have to say on this. Now, you can call our buzz line, 604-331-2899. Give us your assessment of what you heard, what you watched last night. You can email me, simi at cknw.com. I would love to hear uh, your thoughts on this or read your thoughts on this. Or you can just go online and cast your vote. You can find that on Twitter. It's, it's at, at CKNW or at SimiSara980. And it's a very simple question today. Did that televised debate help you decide which party to vote for? Do you say yes, it was enlightening, or no, it was pointless? And I know as Gordon and I were also talking about it, um, it was tough. It just seemed like a very complicated format. Lots of people on the stage, lots of people asking questions. So it did seem a bit difficult at times to get like a clear sense of the candidates. And then they're talking all over each other. And it was just, it just seemed ridiculous at times, right? You're like, these are grown people. Can we not behave like grown people? It did not feel like that at times. Uh, And yet, I feel like whenever we do a debate or talk about debates during election campaign, we tend to almost always have this assessment, right? What did I watch that for? We're waiting for some kind of knockout punch. We're waiting for some kind of standout moment because we know and we have seen in elections past that it can happen. So we don't want to miss it because then we think we might miss that moment where something happens that will help us gain some clarity on what we're feeling and who we should vote for. We're going to break down a little bit more of that debate uh, yesterday, get more of your assessment on this. We were asking this for our hot question of the day today. Did that televised debate yesterday help you decide which party to vote for? And boy, the votes came in or are coming in really fast on our hot question of the day. 72% of people are saying... No, it was pointless. That's a lot of people. Uh, 28% are saying, yes, it was enlightening. I'd love to hear more from you on this. We are going to take your calls coming up. But we also want to break down some of the reaction that the pollsters are also getting on this. Uh, And let's check in now with Daryl Bricker, who's the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. Daryl, thanks for being back with us. Thanks for having me on, Cindy. So I understand that Ipsos was also kind of tracking people while the debate was going on. Is that right? 
Yeah, we were looking mostly at Twitter sentiment. So what uh, what people were saying on Twitter specifically and how many people were watching and what kind of a conversation was uh, was actually going on. And uh, what, what we noticed through the course of the night was, first of all, a lot of people were active and paying attention, but uh, the one leader who improved his impressions, so the sentiment that we were able to take a look at um, during the course of the debate was, was Jagmeet Singh for the NDP. Really? And so in what way? Like, did you see spikes for that? Or what did you see? Yeah, whenever he tended to talk, uh, his, his numbers went up. Uh, none of the attacks that were landed by anybody who was uh, uh, going after him really seemed to have any effect. And he was the one leader that by the, the end of the night, people were feeling better about him than they did at the start. Right. But I mean, I think people were also looking for a kind of a knockout punch. Was there any indication from that that they saw that? No. Uh, what we did see, though, is that uh, two leaders did lose, uh, well, three leaders lost uh, uh, sentiment uh, through the course of the uh, the night. Uh, one of them was obviously Maxime Bernier. Most of the conversation about him was negative, although there was a lot of conversation about him. So if his, if, if his uh, view was to get noticed, uh, he certainly got that, uh, but uh, may, maybe not noticed for the right things. Uh, and then also the Prime Minister, uh, Justin Trudeau, and Andrew Scheer, who most of the conversation was about online last night, uh, both of them experienced a bit of decline in terms of uh, public impressions. But uh, between the two of them, uh, the decline experienced by Justin Trudeau was quite a bit bigger. Isn't that interesting? Because those were the two who probably most needed to have some kind of good debate yesterday to just edge out in front of the other one. Yeah, so if, if that is the measure of success, then the one that um, had a de- uh, the least decline uh, was the was the leader of the official opposition, Andrew Scheer. Uh, Justin Trudeau had, uh, according to these numbers anyway, had a had a uh, had a hard night. Right, and we haven't heard anything about how Elizabeth May did. Yeah, well, you know, there's another thing. You know, sometimes because just because somebody is doing well in the confines of the room and impressing people like pundits and others who are watching it doesn't necessarily mean that they're coming across well uh, to the uh, the overall uh, voting population or at least the people who are watching and making comments about it last night uh, and her uh, her numbers basically flatlined through the entire evening really because like it seemed like if there was i guess one of the interesting storylines daryl that i have found throughout this campaign is that there was a party that started out with a lot of promise in the beginning it was the green party yeah they did but you know i have to say something They've always polled a lot better than they've performed. I mean, the one big exception, there's two big exceptions that we've had. One of them was obviously in the province of British Columbia in the last provincial election. And then the other one was in, I think, Prince Edward Island, where they did a little bit better uh, uh, than, than was predicted. But by and large, they tend to make a bit of noise at the start of the campaign. Uh, get their numbers up in terms of some of the polling results. And then as we get closer to the uh, the actual election date, they tend to decline. Now, it may change this time, but it seems to be following that pattern again. Right. And you've done this enough times, so I can ask this next question. But how much of that initial sentiment, like the initial impressions of a debate of who won and who lost, how much of that continues on in the days after? Does it kind of solidify that way? Well, what tends to happen is that people don't necessarily watch the debate. I don't know what the oh. actual numbers are. Uh, so the, you know, maybe uh, you know a million or a million and a half Canadians watch it. Uh, far less than the number of people who vote. But what they do do is get a lot of information 
after the day after and the days days after that. So what starts to happen is a, a bit of a consensus about what happened in the debate and what it meant starts to get formed in the public consciousness, and that's how it has its effect. The interesting thing that we have now with uh, so much online content is that you know clips from the debate are going to be flowing all over the place. So as much as last night was about the competition that was happening in the room, the bigger competition was probably about getting the best clips. Right. And so if you judge it by that measure, then the initial impression that you had there of NDP leader Jagmeet Singh probably improves because I've seen more clips of him this morning online than anything else. Yeah, so you're going to, exactly. So continuing to reinforce, in fact, we've been tracking it through the morning, same pattern uh, as as last night. Uh, The other thing, though, was that uh, I would say uh, uh, Conservative Party Andrew Scheer, if you wonder why he did what he did at the start, which seemed to come out of left field when he uh, really went after the Prime Minister hard and, and the Prime Minister didn't say anything back to him, yeah. there's, a cl- there's a clip. Ah, right? okay, you're right. And so, that, so I guess it also, parties let you know subtly how they feel about their performance as well, depending on what they're pushing out what they're pushing out and trying to control what the media pushes out. So whenever anybody starts talking, you know, people complain a lot about the talking over. Oh, the yeah. reason for that is what they're trying to do is do is deny their opponent a clip, right? So they're not only are they responding as human beings in the moment and arguing back, but if they if their voices get loud enough, there's it's an unusable an unusable moment in the debate for what follows. Oh, that's so interesting. So there's so much more strategy to the talking over one another than I realized. Oh yeah. Uh, the, the, so uh, if you watch the clips that uh, you know Global's playing today, or any other networks, and you said you've encountered a lot of them on uh, online, yeah. How many of them are, are you know gibberish with people talking over each other? No, they're they're moments, right? They're moments when somebody owns the stage, and if you deny your opponent the stage by talking over what they're saying, then it's very difficult to produce that as a clip that you can use in the days that follow. Boy, Daryl, when you analyze it that way, it just makes it seem like. If people were actually watching that to get some help on who to vote for, I don't think it actually was very helpful. No. <laughs> and, and that's, but like I said, as I said, the consensus forms afterwards and the clips will be out there to reinforce things. But, you know, just to explain to listeners why Andrew Shear did what was seemed completely out of character when he went so hard at Justin Trudeau and Trudeau was kind of standing back. Well, there you go. That's the reason. It's just like when he was waiting for that second. It was like Justin Trudeau walked into, a, you know, walked into a bear trap when he started talking about Doug Ford. You could tell Andrew Shear had been waiting all night for it. And, right. and said, you know, if you're so interested in, in running for provincial politics, there's a, you know, the leadership of the Liberal Party in Ontario is open. Why don't you give it a shot? And instead of talking over him, Trudeau just stat, stood there and let him do it. Okay, there's another clip. Huh. Okay, so then what is Ipsos doing over the next couple of days? Will you continue to be discussing this? And, and what are you asking people? Uh, what we'll be doing... I'm not so big into the who do you think won the debate or who lost the debate. I mean, people really don't know. And, and, and you know, what they think about the winners and losers and treating it as a sporting event is really not that interesting. So we're not, we're not going to be asking anything like that. What we're really going to be doing is trying to take a look to see if any of the fundamentals moved as a result of what happened last night. So, for example, uh, did Jagmeet Singh's leadership approval numbers improve? And do we start to see that the number of people who are, said they were voting liberal or say they are voting liberal, the number that say that they would consider the, the NDP as their second choice, has that gone up? Right. And those are the kinds of things we're looking at because the, nothing is broken in this campaign yet. I mean, 
everybody's waiting for something to happen to, even though we've had a lot of events, uh, nothing's really broken uh, the two major parties out of the tie that they've been in. They've been oscillating around uh, the same numbers right from the very beginning. So the real question is, is there anything that we can start seeing like cracks in the ice starting because of things like second choice for the NDP going up or Jagmeet Singh's leadership numbers going up and maybe Justin Trudeau's going down and people being less likely to believe that they're going to vote for the Liberal Party or vote for the Conservative Party or whoever to see if some of the cracks are starting right. to form. Because I have a feeling that things might move pretty fast in the last week. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. So we're getting down to the crunch time here, right? Two weeks. Is this, Daryl, normally the time when if things do start to shift, this is when you would see it? Yeah, because people are now tuning into the fact that we've actually got an election campaign on. And I expect now that most of the big events of the campaign are done, yeah. that what we're going to be seeing is a lot of replaying and reinterpreting of things like, for example, clips from debate night last night, and uh, uh, really see the uh, the parties, particularly the parties with the resources, really start to spend them and try and have an influence on the outcome. Oh, so interesting. Well, Daryl, we'll be talking to you again. Thanks very much. I look forward to it. Thank you very much. That is Daryl Bricker, the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, giving us their analysis on what has happened during the debate and uh, what has happened in the hours since then. And I certainly learned something new then. That So there's actually strategy to the talking over your opponent, because so many people have written to me to complain about that. So there's some good news and some concerning news out of this new United Way survey on communities and how we are feeling. The good news is about 86% of British Columbians say they are proud of the city or municipality in which they live. Almost 80% say they feel a strong sense of connection to their neighborhoods or their communities. That's all good, right? But on the not-so-great side, it also found that about 46% of British Columbians say they sometimes feel lonely. 38% say they feel isolated from other people in their community. And 41% say they don't have many people to talk to in their own neighbourhoods. Now, those results show us that we clearly need to do some work out there. Now, if you looked across the region, Vancouver was actually the home to the highest number of people who reported a strong sense of connection to their city, while people in the Fraser Valley and in the northern part of our province more likely to volunteer in groups many times per year. It's a really fascinating survey that was done by the United Way to take a look at how we're feeling, how we're feeling connected to the people that we live with in our towns and in our cities. They questioned about 800 adults all over the province uh, between September 13th and 18th, and we wanted to learn more about this. So to talk more with us about that, we were joined by Jennifer Marshall, the Director of Donor Experience for the United Way. Well, Jennifer, thanks so much for joining us to talk about this today. First off, what is it that the United Way was looking at with this survey? Yeah, so we wanted to better understand how people are feeling in regards to social isolation and loneliness across the province. And so that's what the research really focused on. There seems to be a lot of that discussion these days, right, about social isolation and loneliness. Like, why do you think that is? Um, Great question. I think there's a lot of reasons. We're really focused at United Way and being embedded in community. And what we're hearing is um, a lot of it has to do with people are working harder. It's an expensive place to live. Sure is, yes. (laughs) There's long commutes. People are living in the suburbs and commuting in, which takes up a lot of time. We also have found through some of the research that we've done that a diversity of languages often means that people aren't speaking the same languages in their own communities, um, which can also contribute to that factor. But uh, yeah, that's what we've really found. All of those things then 
adding up means what? Are we feeling more lonely these days? I can't comment on whether or not we're feeling more lonely, but I can talk about our research. And our research shows that 46% of British Columbians are feeling lonely at some point. That's a big number. It is. It's almost half the population. What do you think it means to say that somebody feels lonely? Is it that we're not talking enough to other people? Are we not engaging with others? Like, where does that, where do you think that comes from? Yeah, I think it's definitely both of those things. Um, With some of the work we've done with one of our initiatives called High Neighbor, we're really focused on being embedded in community, listening to community, and understanding where these feelings of loneliness come from. And a lot of it is that people literally are not talking to their neighbors. They are no longer, you know, having the opportunity to connect on a human-to-human level. And we've seen that in a lot of different communities that we've worked in. So it's we don't knock on the door anymore or we don't wave and say hi? Like, I think it's both of those things. I mean, we're in a culture now where, number one, social media is, is a way that we communicate. We communicate digitally, not so much in person. Also, I think that we, um, because we live in such an incredibly diverse uh, area of the world, which is amazing, what we found in some of the research that we've done is that people actually don't speak the same language as their neighbors, which can be challenging in terms of forging social connections. Or do we think that that's going to be challenging? Do you know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. maybe we just assume... And I think there is a lot of that going on. And I wonder, does social media play a role in any of this as well? Like, we think we find our communities online as opposed to next door. Absolutely. And so we almost see it as oftentimes you are foregoing having a human-to-human conversation in person in service to communicating digitally through social media. I wonder as well, is it, oh, we think we can find like-minded people or people who are like us online, therefore we don't need to try to get to know people who might be a little bit different from us (laughs) who live on our street. Who literally live next door. Yeah. Do you (laughs) think there's some of that happening? Absolutely. And we see that in a lot of the work that we're doing with our high neighbor initiatives. Those are really focused on trying to be embedded in community at United Way, understanding what barriers people are facing in regards to social isolation and loneliness. Right. You also looked at this in terms of like Vancouver and the connection that people feel to their city. What did that tell you? Mm -hmm. Um, What's interesting, I think, is that in uh, across the Lower Mainland and Fraser Valley, there's so many different suburbs and so many different pockets of municipalities and ways that people connect to their community. And so depending on where you live in the Lower Mainland or Fraser Valley or in other parts of the province, that actually affects how you feel in regards to social isolation and loneliness. In what what way? Um, So what we found was that in different parts of the province, people felt either more lonely or less lonely, which was really interesting. Now, full disclosure, we don't know why. We're working to better understand that, but it was interesting to see that depending on where you lived, there were higher rates of social isolation or loneliness uh, where, in terms of feeling. Right. Can you Were you able to identify sort of which areas did have the higher rates yep. of loneliness? Yep. So Vancouver was one. Right. Vancouver, which big, we, yeah, we big know. City. Yeah. <laughs> so that was one. Um, and then we also saw it in um, parts of southern BC. So Kamloops was another where we saw it, which was really interesting. Again, we don't know why and what we want to do. We're embedded in community to better understand the why. So we don't know why yet, but it was interesting to see that. And what about volunteering? Do people still do that as well? People do. And what's so interesting with this research is we found that if people volunteer together, our research showed it's 21% more meaningful to volunteer in a group with people you know than alone. Huh. Okay. But are there, what, like, were you able to identify as well, like, what areas people are more likely to identify? Were there certain communities where you had more volunteers than other communities, perhaps? The research didn't actually look at that. um, So I can't comment directly on that. Um, Yeah. 
Okay, interesting. So, uh, what did it tell you about people, say, in the Fraser Valley, and mm-hmm. like, were they feeling lonely and isolated as well? Um, there were stats that showed that across, I mean, across British Columbia, people definitely felt lonely and uh, isolated. Um, what we found, though, was actually in suburban communities, there were less feelings of loneliness and isolation than in more urban communities like Vancouver, which is interesting. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So, if you live in the burbs, and I, I think there's a lot of truth to that, right? Yeah. We feel like you know your neighbors totally you know your you know you know the people that on the street that you live in in the suburbs as opposed to when you move into the city exactly and so that kind of gets played out we th- we think about that as a stereotype but it's true from what you saw from our research is showing that now we're trying to understand why yeah so what do you do with this information then mm-hmm. great question so we're really focused at united way at trying to listen to citizens and then working with citizens to address some of the issues that we find through our research perfect example we have high neighbor initiatives that focus on embedding ourselves in community and working to address social isolation and loneliness with the people who live in those communities. And so this helps us understand where those pockets of social isolation and loneliness might exist so that we can actually move to work with citizens to address some of those issues. So then do you say, okay, we need to clearly put together more volunteer work in this community because we had a high level of isolation and loneliness there. That's one possibility, absolutely, as well as just trying to get a better read on how people are feeling in regards to social isolation and loneliness. Right. This yeah. seems, like I say, it seems to be a very popular topic these days. Like We yeah. know this about ourselves, but we don't seem to be trying hard enough to actually bring ourselves out of that shell. It's hard. It's yeah. hard. I mean, I think part of it is our daily lives are so busy, yeah. <laughs> compounded with the amount we have to work to live in this beautiful place, <laughs> yeah. the commutes that we have to, you know, we've talked about this, the commutes, um, all of that kind of stuff contributes to it. But what's really exciting that came out of this research is that if you do things like volunteer to give together with other people or give back to charity with other people, it's actually more meaningful. Our research showed that it's 21% more meaningful to give back your time with other people, and it's right. 10% more meaningful to give back to charity in a group, which is really cool. So those are literally antidotes to social isolation and loneliness. All right. Really fascinating. Jennifer, yeah. thank you so much. Thanks. My pleasure. That is uh, Jennifer Marshall, the Director of Donor Experience for the United Way, talking about social isolation and how we feel in our communities. Really interesting survey that the United Way did. Did you know that more people have actually died exploring underwater caves than climbing Mount Everest? Now, I didn't know that, right? Because we hear a lot about Mount Everest. You do not hear a lot about that statistic. And we know more about deep space than we do about some of the deepest areas of our oceans. Well, a lot of this you can learn actually in this fascinating new book called Into the Planet, My Life as a Cave Diver. And all morning long when I have been promoting the story, I have said, you're going to meet somebody who has one of the most fascinating and probably most dangerous jobs that you've ever heard of. And that is true. Jill Heinerth joins us now, Canadian cave diver and underwater explorer. Jill, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. The book is fascinating. What made you want to write this? Thanks. Uh, you know, I think I'm still that that little kid in kindergarten that loved show and tell. And I, I love the opportunity to share with people things that they'll never have a chance to see. The first line of the book says, mm-hmm. if I die, it will be in the most glorious place that nobody has ever seen. Does that mm-hmm. thought cross your mind sometimes when you're in these places? Oh, sure. I mean, I've definitely had some, some close calls in life. Uh, but 
it's not like I have a death wish. <laughs> you know, I try to prepare properly with equipment and training and, and you know, mental preparation before going into these environments because they are incredibly risky. Yeah. What is it exactly that you do for people who don't know? So, you know, underwater caves are something that's pretty abstract to most people. These are water-filled spaces beneath the surface of the earth that I'm swimming through these environments, like in the veins of Mother Earth, in the groundwater, the sustenance of the planet. And these caves are virtually museums of natural history, containing information about Earth's past climate, containing the remains of past civilizations, and even the bones of extinct animals. Sounds very dangerous, though. It is, yeah, because everything that can possibly go wrong in this environment, and there's a lot, you have to be able to handle on your own in this overhead environment. You can't just swim to the surface for help. So you're there is no air pocket, there's no whatever. There's no direct ascent to the surface. So I might be miles inside the planet on a branching conduit, and I have to find my way back to the entrance, back to the daylight. How? <laughs> I was just imagining that. It sounds terrifying to me. But how did you learn that this was something that you were good at? <laughs> One step at a time, really. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I started as a young scuba diver, and um, I enjoyed caving in dry cave environments. And when I had the chance to put those two together, it was like this light bulb went off and it's like, oh, this is incredible. This is an environment I had never envisioned before. And exploring it has been an incredible privilege. Clearly you're not claustrophobic, Jill. I don't have a bit of claustrophobia, no. no. I was that kid building a fort in the kitchen cupboard. (laughs) (laughs) Burrowing into the kitchen cupboard there. Because I feel a little claustrophobic just thinking about the places that you have gone. Tell us about some of the most amazing places that you've been. Well, I've been inside icebergs in Antarctica. I've been underneath the Sahara Desert. I've been in the Ural Mountains in Siberia and the longest gypsum cave in the world. And even inside a volcano, the Monte Corona volcano, in water-filled lava tubes. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. Uh, We were talking just off air before we started. I said, boy, you must have been following what was going on in Thailand Mm -hmm. uh, with the cave rescue there. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. There were some of my very dearest friends and expedition colleagues that that led that rescue effort. And it's great to have a happy ending to a cave diving story. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think people, do they fully understand what it is that you're doing down there? Is it, it's hard to comprehend. Yeah, it is hard to com- comprehend. It takes so much training and preparation, practice, proficiency in order to go into these environments. And, you know, it's not something you can just swim into on a lark. And people that do don't come back from that. It's very serious. Can you walk us through the preparation then? Like, how mm-hmm. long do you go down for? What do you see? Do you take pictures? How does this work? Yeah, so my specialty is um, bringing back documentation so pictures and videos so sometimes for scientists sometimes for tv networks and um, when i swim into that environment i might be wearing the same kind of life support equipment that an astronaut would wear to make a spacewalk so i could have up to five or six hundred pounds of equipment that i'm swimming into this cave to a place that nobody's ever been before with a lot of lights um, sometimes alone sometimes with a big team and uh, we work together Uh, we can't talk to each other underwater but we'll communicate with our lights and uh, sometimes alone yeah. you said and I was just thinking yeah. of a story we discussed earlier about people feeling lonely in their neighborhoods how lonely is a feeling as that like being miles mm. into a cave underground by yourself I would say it's like focus it's it's the ultimate focus when I submerge underneath the water everything topside disappears all the sounds all the distractions you know you know you're completely focused on what you're doing 
How did you get into this? Well, uh, very slowly. Uh, it takes so much training and experience in order yeah. to to do this well. Um, so I was you know, first a, a scuba diver, an instructor, a technical diver, an underwater photographer, and then into caves one step at a time. Do you have favorite caves, cave, favorite dives mm-hmm. that you have done? My very favorite in terms of beauty would be these caves that are in Abaco in the Bahamas, the very location where Hurricane Dorian just mm. ran across the Bahamas. And uh, these caves are like swimming inside of crystal chandeliers. There's beautiful stalactites, stalagmites that you're weaving your way through. There's even places like one spot where there's a bat that's trapped underneath the calcite. So when the cave was dry under previous lower ocean levels, a bat flew in there, died, and then became encased in the rock. And you can see him through this clear crystal. It's beautiful. Does it occur to you sometimes, must, when you're down there and you're seeing some of these things that nobody else has ever seen this before on Earth? Absolutely, and nobody ever will in many cases. (laughs) And the kind of information that I'm bringing back for scientists informs them about things, new discoveries, new species, you know, new archaeology, extinct animals that have never been documented before. Yeah, okay. What is the most amazing thing then that you have seen down there? Not just in the most amazing cave, but uh-huh. wow. There oh, there's so much. I mean, we found ice age bear skulls in caves in Mexico. We find fascinating um live animals swimming in these caves that live their entire life in the darkness of the underwater cave. Animals that um, predate the extinction of the dinosaurs. So living, swimming dinosaurs, only they're small. Really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My favorite animal is this thing called remipede. So it's uh, it's very small. If it were the size of a cat, it would be the deadliest animal on the planet because it has venomous fangs and pincers and it can attack things and um, inject How big them. is this thing? It's you know, about an inch and a half long at the most. Okay. Yeah. And it can kill its prey, turn the guts into jello and then suck the life out of this thing over time. <laughs> That sounds like a really bad or horrible movie <laughs> yeah. is what that sounds like. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> now, your book, of course, there's a lot of fascinating things in there that I've covered, but your book called Into the Planet, My Life as a Cave Diver is also very personal. It is. Where you talk about growing up. Was this a cathartic thing for you to write this? It was. I mean, I wanted to talk about, uh, you know, I wanted to be vulnerable. I wanted to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. You know, it's, I'm not some like chest beating hero going off and doing something brave. I'm actually scared most of the time when I go down diving and I want to dive with people that are scared and I wanted to share that with people and hopefully that would help them to take on things that were scary in their own lives. You said you want to dive with people who are scared. Why? Well, we both, because we both understand risk and it means we both want to come home at the end of the day to our families and we're not going to do things that are unnecessary. We know when to turn around. So you that keeps you smart, essentially. It does, yeah. I can't get too yeah, cocky. Absolutely. You get too cocky and you get dead fast, yeah. Are there places that you still want to go, places that are on that list mm. of things that you haven't seen yet? Yeah, absolutely. There's a world of places I haven't visited yet. I, I still, I wouldn't call it a bucket list because I feel like I'm, I'm living my dreams every day. I pinch myself with, with what I get to do. It's great, you know. But destinations, yes. Scientific discoveries, yes. So many things. Things I have left. Like what? Well, I, you know, I've got ongoing work in California mapping caves in 3D with exciting technology that's destined for space. I've got work ongoing in the Arctic where I get to talk about climate change, a really important issue that we all need to understand more about. And that all feels pretty important to me. 
how many people do what you do, Jill? Uh, you know, not too many people make a full-time I know. I was going to say, what, two, three in the entire <laughs> yeah. world? How many people do? There can't well, be very many. Yeah. However, you know, I'm, I have a hybrid career. I'm doing whatever I need to do to stay in the water, this place that I love and I'm passionate about. And I think kids today need to look towards a future where they have hybrid careers too and need to learn to write and shoot photos and talk publicly and employ all kinds of different literacies to do what they love. They're living in the gig economy, much much like right. me. They're not going to work for a boss for the rest of their lives. Because you started out in advertising, I seem to remember. I did. From the book, is that you went to graphic design school and started out running an advertising company. Yeah, I have a Bachelor of Fine Arts. That's my educational background. Um but, you know, what do you do to become a cave diver, right? Yeah. <laughs> Don't really go to school for something like that. Yeah, but the thing is, you know, you can do anything today with the global interconnectivity that we have. You can reach out to people, volunteer, learn to do things through unconventional means, like not through going to a college program, but by reaching out and interning with somebody. So this is a great book tour that you have been on. You told me you've been on the road for quite a while now. Uh, what is the next big job for you, though? What are you doing next? Yeah, more of this work um, in California, more in the Arctic. I'm going to Truck Lagoon soon and to the Philippines. So I've got all kinds of exciting things coming got up a lot in the of work next few months. <laughs> well, the book was fascinating. Thank you so much for telling us all about it. Oh, thank you. Greatest job I've ever This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system hurt, Jill. That's a really good one. I admire that. That's Jill Heiner, the Canadian cave diver and underwater explorer. The book is called Into the Planet, My Life as a Cave Diver. You should definitely check that out. Yeah, we're talking today about last night's debate, or I guess for us, it was yesterday afternoon. It started at four, went until six. I had quite a few people who say, yeah, they made the effort. They watched the whole two hours. Uh, and it was a debate that at times was, let's just say, testy. Did feature quite a bit of mudslinging, lots of crosstalk from the leaders, and every single one of them refusing to give an inch. Now, to say like where most of the criticism went, probably at this point, Liberal leader Justin Trudeau took a lot of that. Uh, he had to fight hard to try to defend his government's track record and to try to justify why he feels they should get any more years in power. And today, the debate now being behind them, all the leaders kind of went out on the campaign trail today. Uh, Liberal leader Justin Trudeau talking about climate change in Iqaluit before flying back to Toronto. Conservative leader Andrew Scheer and New Democrat leader Jagmeet Singh all spending the day in Toronto. Uh, both parties definitely hoping to take some seats from the Liberals there. Uh, Green leader Elizabeth May campaigning in Montreal today. But let's get some more assessment about how last night went. And there's one person, of course, who knows better than anybody because she was right in the middle of it. And that would be Donna Friesen, one of the federal leaders, debate moderator and anchor and executive editor of Global National who joins us now. Donna, thank you so much for being here. Hey, my pleasure. And, you know, it's funny because I was in the middle of it. It's actually very hard to get a sense of how it all went. Ah, okay. That's what I was wondering because you were right there close up and lots of people are saying, oh, there was so much crosstalk and whatever. How did you get a sense of how the leaders performed? So, um, 
So I am uncomfortable with that question because it's really not my assessment of how they perform. So I'd rather reframe it and look at it a different way, which is, um, first of all, the format. I think um, I appreciate that this is the only chance to see these six leaders side by side in an English debate in this election campaign. So just to see them all together two weeks away from voting day, side by side, you know, confronting Mm -hmm. some hard questions is, is kind of remarkable. And they were all there and willing to do it and put in the time. There were too many of them. There were too many people on that stage and um, too many moderators and too many leaders. And uh, to be frank, I don't know why, uh, Bernier was there for the People's Party of Canada. Um, You know, he's the only uh, sitting member (laughs) of his party, and he was elected as a conservative. So he has one MP himself, and he has about 2% support in the polls now. So he went into this. I don't think he should have been there. He was invited to be there. He had nothing to lose because he has 2% support. So if he loses half of it, he's down to 1%, right? Yeah. Nothing, nothing, nowhere to go but up for him. Uh, Yves-Francois Blanchette, uh, you know, I don't know what he was doing there either. I don't think he's a federal party leader. He is only running candidates in Quebec. So no one in the rest of the country can vote for anyone from his party. So, you know, I think it took up too much time uh, to uh, have all these people involved, and there were too many moderators. So that resulted in um, us being effectively timekeepers, as the public could see. We were constantly trying to move them on and keep them to time. And that didn't lend itself to a lot of depth and a lot of, uh, you know, really informing people. Um, So that's sort of my assessment. Right. I I think your assessment, even though you said you were in the middle of it, it was hard. It's exactly what everybody else's assessment, I feel like, has been today from that. Lots of crosstalk. And it must be hard for you as a moderator as well to kind of jump in and tell people, could you please just answer the question? That's a tough job. Well, it's a tough job. And it's also, these are all adults. They're not children, right? They're leaders of parties. If they want to do that and engage that way, and they think that that's going to be the best way to convince undecided voters to vote for them, we'll have at it. Uh, you know, I, I think the person who came across as sort of most respectful and reasonable and didn't interrupt and crosstalk was the NDP leader, Jagmeet Singh. And I'm not saying that from any partisan perspective, right. just from a kind of human interaction. Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't, I think, you know, from a, political strategy, uh, I guess what you do when you uh, agree to engage in these debates and come on live TV is you're hoping you're going to connect with viewers who haven't made a decision about whether to vote for you, because those are the people everybody's trying to get, the pool of undecided voters. For the partisans, they've already figured it out. They don't need to see a debate to decide. So for the undecided voters, they actually want to see Oh, you know, maybe maybe Elizabeth May, maybe there's something I didn't know about her or her platform that is going to convince me tonight um, or, or for any of the others. And um, because the format was the way it was, I think it was difficult for undecided people. People I've spoken to since then say, no, nah, it didn't change anything for me. Yeah, that's what I hear, too. Was there a question that you wish had been covered or a topic that you wish had been covered that perhaps didn't get enough attention? Uh, well, I mean, a lot of them didn't answer the questions that were Yeah, posed. that's also so, true. Yeah. So I think the ones we had, the topics we had, were good ones. Um, 
I, you know, a lot of people, many, many viewers emailed me and had a whole range of questions that they wanted asked. Um, I think chief among them was healthcare, issues of healthcare, which of course is, you know, it's a complicated thing because the money, the transfer payments come yes. from the federal government. It's administered provincially. So it was, you know, it's a complicated question, but I know it's a huge concern for many Canadians. Um, and I was really disappointed that the abortion thing came up again and ended up with this crazy crosstalk and, you know, between Sheer yeah. and Trudeau accusing each other. It is a non-issue. It is a red herring. No party is going to reintroduce uh, any, uh, you know, debate over uh, abortion. Um, it just comes up every federal election because it's an easy button pusher. And so true. it drives me crazy. Well, you know what? I'm so glad to hear, though, Donna, your assessment is very similar to everything we have been hearing. So, oh, is that right? Yes, we have. So listen, thank you so much for your time on this today. We really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Take care. Good luck. And we'll see you tonight on Global National. That is Donna Friesen, anchor and executive editor. Of course, she was one of the moderators of that federal leaders debate. And I'm glad to hear that even though she said she was in the middle of it, it was tough for her to make that assessment. It is exactly what we have all been hearing and talking about today. I want to talk a story about a story now from Toronto, actually, because they're doing something a little bit differently in the city of Toronto. Starting right away, they're not going to be issuing any new licenses for payday loan outlets. So why are they doing this? What led them to this? We're going to talk more about that now with the help of CKNW contributor Claire Allen, who's with us. Hi. Hey, Simi. Yeah, so it's very interesting. You're right. Starting immediately, Toronto will not be issuing any new licenses for payday loan outlets like a Money Mart or... Um, other things that you might see in the city of Vancouver or other municipalities. And this is because there are being concerns and outcry in the city that these companies um, sort of practice predatory tactics towards low-income residents and sort of create this cycle of being in debt and leading Constantly to Constantly bank- being in debt. Exactly. And then leading to ultimately bankruptcy. Um, and so this change, which is a major regulatory change, was approved through a unanimous 20 to 0 vote from, really? yeah, from Toronto Council last week. And there's some other recommendations that go with it. However, to start off, I spoke with Toronto City Councillor Anthony Peruza about why he put forth the motion. So you go to a, um, a, you know, a payday lender and uh, they give you short-term loans and uh, they charge you uh, $15 per $100. That, that uh, you know, averages out into an annual interest rate of about 390%. So if you and I got charged 390% on our short-term credit card loans, you know, we'd be, we'd be in open rebellion. Um, uh, similarly, uh, for example, the installment loans, for, uh, for example, loans that uh, are in excess of $1,500 uh, that you pay back in, in, uh, in installments, uh, they can charge you up to the criminal rate of interest, 60%. Um, again, if you and I, uh, you know, um, you know, you put a, a two thousand dollars on our credit card, and we got charged sixty percent interest, we'd be in open rebellion. You know, we we'd be storming their their doors, pitchforks held high, right? Uh, so, so that's what these folks are doing, and they're mostly uh, doing it to 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 people in in poor neighborhoods across the city, uh, people who need access to ready cash. Um, you know, don't have the wherewithal uh, uh, like you and I to have a credit card. Uh, and then, they, then they're then they gouged by these folks. 
That's such a good point. I think we forget sometimes that there's lots of people out there who, yeah, they can't just sign up for a credit card mm-hmm. or it's not just easy for them for that kind of stuff. Yeah, they don't have the privileges that a lot of people have. Yeah. Like we are blind to that part of life if we do not experience it. So Peruza told me that he and the rest of council do not want to see the proliferation of these payday lenders in neighborhoods with vulnerable people. And so um, he said that this motion will not only affect payday lenders um, will not affect payday lenders already in operation because they're not going to be issuing any new licenses. But for payday lenders already in operation, this is what will happen. So the ones that are out there and currently in business continue to exist, continue to grant, be grandfathered. And once those businesses, um, you know, see, uh, um, uh, you know, cease their activity, no new licenses will be issued to replace them. Now, wouldn't that be a bit of a concern, though, too, because now you're offering less competition to those mm-hmm. businesses? Yes, but um, so that this is one thing that he kind of says might counteract it. So for those that are grandfathered in, and you're right, do, will not have yeah. any new businesses coming on the scene, this motion also takes aim at how those existing lenders in Toronto can advertise. We also added a component to it that businesses will not be able to advertise on public property, like, you know, on buses or in hockey rinks or through the library board or that kind of thing. So on public property, they they won't be permitted to advertise. That's really interesting then Mm -hmm. because, yeah, you do see a lot of those ads everywhere. Yeah, on buses, exactly, like he said. So he believes that with, if they're not advertised, people that may not that may not use their services already, right. they will not become future customers. So I was wondering, but what if you are a business operator, a payday lender op- business in Toronto? You might think that this decision is quite unfair. And so I asked Councillor Peruza about what he would say to business owners of a payday lending outlet who are critical of the council's decision. I guess my, my conversation with them would be just simply, look, find a way to be able to, to lend money to people, find a way to Continue to do your business and be in business, but don't take advantage of vulnerable folks and desperate folks uh, to those levels. Uh, that that would be my uh, you know my retort to them. I mean that's a great that's great advice, but that's their business model. Exactly, I know. That's, so, how, that's what they do. Yeah. So I don't know how well that would go over. Um, but one thing that they are hoping, Toronto Council is kind of hoping that this idea will reverberate sort of across the country. Now, there already are some regulations in place in different provinces for payday lenders, but uh, Councillor Perza told me that a component of the motion was to communicate with uh, Toronto's actions to the Federation of Ontario Municipalities and other municipalities across the country. He told me that, like I said, each province has different rules regarding payday lenders. Uh, for example, Alberta has uh, provincial rules, and they've been very aggressive uh, in uh, in regulating uh, payday loan uh, payday lenders. Quebec, for example, doesn't permit them. So everybody has uh, somewhat different rules, and we want to find a solution here in the city of Toronto that that works for Toronto and that ensures that, that whatever we do, it, it minimizes the you know sort of the, the, the you know the taking advantage of. Uh, vulnerable, desperate people. Okay, so that's what they're doing in Toronto. Yeah. But what do we do here in BC? So I was looking around to see if um, if we have anything similar because this is banning new licenses, like not yeah. granting licenses to new payday loan outlets. It's a pretty extreme measure. Um, some would say maybe unprecedented. Uh, so I thought that was, that was very interesting. Um, 
so what I, I was curious to see about how British Columbia regula- regulates payday lenders, because I see a lot of payday loan outlets in various parts of the lower mainland. Yeah. So I reached out to the Consumer Protection of BC about what the province is doing right now to regulate these lenders. And their spokesperson, Tatiana Shobo-Smith, told me that the payday lending industry has been regulated in BC since to, uh, November 2009. And at a high level, the law protects consumers by requiring that payday lenders be licensed, setting a maximum allowable cost for borrowing. So fees should never be more than $15 per 100 uh, borrowed. Um, disclosure of certain information and prohibiting certain lending practices. However, um, there was a report in 2016 by Van City that said there was a 58% jump in the number of people in our province using payday loans. So right. there is a concern that these are that these loans are out there and a lot of people are yeah. taking advantage of them and, and, and yeah. ultimately maybe spiraling into debt. Because once you're in there, it's like they suck you in. Exactly. And it's hard to you know get on top of the loan and pay everything off, especially if you're already coming from a situation where you don't have that kind of cash on hand. Yeah. Now, I th- the one thing I found in our uh, in our province that was interesting is that in 2015, Maple Ridge actually passed a bylaw to ban any more businesses from opening up in their city. But so far, we haven't seen that in other municipalities. Um, the city of wow. Vancouver discussed it in t- 2005, but thought that the regulations in place through the province were enough maybe to combat the issue of payday loans. Interesting. So there are some municipalities, clearly like Maple Ridge, that thought this was enough of a problem to yeah. do something. and Surrey has talked about it as well, but um, we just haven't seen, I mean, what Toronto is doing, I, I think it's a very interesting proposal and I would like to see what other people think of yeah. it, if that's something they would like to see in their municipality. I would like to hear too if people have ever used these. Mm-hmm. Like, is can you break that habit once you're in there? Like, is it possible to use it just once or twice? Does it come in handy, or do they suck you in? Like, are they that predatory? Right, because you could say maybe there there could be an argument that these um, outlets are providing ne- some kind of service, exactly yeah. necessary for some situations. But you're right; if they are predatory, then that's a different story. Yeah, I would love to hear from people on that. If you've ever used one of these, what has your experience been? If you've ever used one of like, like Claire was a many martyr, whatever it is, one of these payday loan lenders. Let me know. Simi at cknw.com. Claire, thank you. Thanks, Simi. Well, right now we're going to be talking about blood clots and you may go, why? Why are you talking about those? Well, we're learning a lot more about them. They don't discriminate. They affect even high performance athletes such as tennis champ Serena Williams. Now she nearly died from a blood clot in her lung. That's called a pulmonary embolism after she gave birth uh, to her daughter by C-section. Here she is discussing the ordeal while she was on ABC's The View. Yeah, I had a really difficult afterbirth. Everything was good for the first 15 hours, and after that, it was just all downhill. I got a, a embolism in my in my lungs, and then a blood clot in my leg, and then I had to have a tube entered, and then they had to go back and reopen my C-section a second time because I had a hematoma. It was crazy. Oh, that is some scary stuff. And then, you know, 2016 presidential candidate, former U.S. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, also had a blood clot, but behind her right ear. And it was found during a routine brain scan. And she discussed her health issues with CNN in 2012. That if you have had one blood clot, mm-hmm. there is uh, two times chance that you will have another one. I mean, mm-hmm. this is something that you're going to have to deal with for a long well, time. Well, millions of people do. I mean, it's very common. It's you not. Take medication? Well, that's what people do when, when uh, they have 
blood clots, and then you get evaluated after the blood clot has resolved, because as you say, I've experienced this before. And lots of other high-profile names as well. Regis Philbin, co-host of Live with Regis and Kelly, had to have surgery to remove one from his calf. Comedian Gary Shandling tragically died from one, a pulmonary embolism back in 2016. So they can be deadly, yet most of us would not recognize the signs and symptoms of them as similarly as you would be able to figure out if you were having a heart attack or a stroke. A person who is completely healthy can have blood clots. But one in four deaths worldwide are actually related to this, related to blood clots. So given how serious this is and potentially fatal consequences of undiagnosed blood clots and the long-term effects of them, St. Paul's Hospital's Thrombosis Clinic is actually hosting two free public education sessions that are coming up uh, Wednesday, so tomorrow night, that are going to outline the symptoms and risk factors. And all of this will mark a World Thrombosis Day, which take place October the 13th. So there's a session on October the 9th at 6 and 7 p.m. at the Cullen Family Lecture Theater. It's room 1477 at St. Paul's. Uh, So they are asking you to register because space is limited, but we wanted to talk more about this. Dr. Tony Wan is with us, the co-director of St. Paul's Hospital's Thrombosis Clinic. Dr. Wan, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So it seems like there's a lot more awareness of blood clots these days. Why do you think that is? I think partly is, as you mentioned, there are a few cases of uh, high-profile people yeah. uh, with it, and and uh, that really uh, help us uh, increase awareness. But I have to say, it is a major public health uh, problem. In Canada, every year, about 100,000 people will have blood clots. That's a big number. And the deaths related to blood clots actually is more than HIV breast cancer, more motor vehicle accident deaths combined. So that is certainly a significant number. And yet, is it because we seem to divide them up into categories, right? We go, oh, pulmonary embolism or stroke or whatever, but yet underlying all of that is blood clots. That's correct. Heart attack is essentially a a blockage or blood clot uh, in the heart and uh, a stroke, uh, a clot or blockage in the brain. And particularly, I think... Venous blood clots, thrombosis in the legs and the lungs are underrecognized compared to, let's say, heart attack and strokes. And um, hopefully with our educational session, we can help uh, uh, raise the awareness uh, uh, furthermore. Well, let's talk a little bit more about those signs and symptoms. Like, How is somebody supposed to know that they have a blood clot that could be dangerous? Mm-hmm. We do have a mnemonic that can help us uh, remember the signs and symptoms. I do love the mnemonics. Yeah, it comes in handy because it's a lot to remember. Yeah. Uh, As you know, we use clots as the mnemonic. C-L-O-T-S. C stands for chest pain. L stands for lightheadedness, like dizziness. O is out of breath. Uh, For L is... uh, uh, tenderness in the leg and S is uh, swelling in the legs. So hopefully with that, uh, uh, we can help people remember. So would it be all of those things together or can you have several of those symptoms? Yeah. So certainly they're all symptoms but everyone's different. Some people may have two or three of them, others one and, and very alarmingly some people don't. Uh, uh, silent blood clots are not unusual 
And when it happens, sometimes it's already very late. Are certain people more、uh, likely to get a blood clot? Like if you're sedentary, but like we even know that even athletes get them as well. So, like, how, how do we know who's more likely to get one? Yeah, yeah. I think everyone's at some risk of、uh, getting a blood clot, but certainly certain people or population at a higher risk. There are some risk factors that we can look out for. The strongest ones are probably recent surgery. Especially major surgery requiring uh, uh, anesthetic.、Uh, if you are hospitalized for any acute medical problem,、uh, and cancer, I think that's another under recognized risk factor.、Uh, cancer patients have much higher risk of getting blood clots compared to patients without cancer. Do we know why? It's hard to pinpoint the exact mechanism, what's going on in the,、uh, in the body, but cancer itself. Can trigger formation of blood clot, but also the body's response to cancer can、uh, also trigger blood clots. Some of our very effective cancer treatment、uh, can also、uh, increase the risk of blood clots. So it's really a combination of、uh, a few things. So if you have one then, and you've gotten one, and how is that treated? And is that then treatment that you have to take for the rest of your life?、Mm-hmm. You know, that's. that's I think、uh, most of my question,、uh, patients' most common question, they're、yeah. worried that they need to be on a treatment for lifelong. Yeah.、Uh, the situation depends. But、uh, in general,、uh, when you are diagnosed with a blood clot in the legs or the lungs, at the very minimum, you'll be on blood thinner for about three months or so. Depending on your situation, some people can stop after three months. And certainly, some people need uh, uh, lifelong treatment. So, that is a discussion with your,、uh, with your specialists and your doctors. So, everybody is different. That's correct.、Yeah. Now, I'm guessing the ones in the legs, I think, are, are the、mm-hmm. ones probably that people are most familiar with. Because you think of that, like people wear compression socks on airplanes when they're flying.、Mm-hmm. That, I always hear that that is, that is the big concern for people. Yes, that, that's probably the most recognized one.、Um, Uh, quite recently,、uh, Thrombosis Canada, a, a nonprofit organization uh, uh, with the mission to increase or improve the care for patient blood clots, did a national survey across Canada. And I think it's quite surprising that less than half of the people、uh, that they surveyed it,、uh, know about blood clots in the legs. And more alarmingly, only about two out of ten people that they surveyed. Will clearly be able to tell you the signs and symptoms of blood clots in the legs. So that is concerning. And I think partly is, is、uh, we're not doing uh, uh, as much as we can to educate、uh, the public. And hopefully, with these sessions and, and shows like this, we can.、Right. We can、uh, tell people more. But you said yourself, like I said, oh,、yeah. thrombosis clinic at St. Paul's Hospital. How long has that been there? And you said this year. <laughs> <Yeah> . So it's new this year. Yes. Uh, we have a lot of specialists and also doctors around the province who treat blood clots. But having a、uh, dedicated cl- clinic is, is quite different because my、uh, nursing colleagues are、uh, excellent in providing、uh, education and care. And also, the fact that we have a centralized clinic it means that we get to see more patients with it. Like anything else, practice makes you better. The、right. more cases you see, I think we, we improve in our, our delivery of care. Uh, Vancouver General Hospital has had a dedicated thrombosis clinic for、uh, a long time. 
And with us, we just see that uh, the demand is, is so much higher right. now that, that we need to uh, make something formal. So do you think, Dr. Wan, that if we can get a better awareness and tackling blood clots, then we could actually make a difference, like bring down heart attack numbers and bring down stroke numbers and pulmonary embolism numbers? I believe so. I think awareness is the key. All these conditions, if you pick it up early and go uh, see me- medical treatment, the outcome is much better compared to if, if the treatment is delayed. Right. So certainly uh, uh, recognition uh, is, is the first step. And you mentioned that when it comes to the um, mnemonic about clots, you mentioned like pain in the chest, but can there be pain elsewhere too? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, chest pain is very general terms. Yeah. And, and I have to say, of all the patients I treated, not everyone described chest pain as chest pain. Right. Some people will tell me, you know, I have pain in my side. But when you look at it, it's more like the side of the chest. Right. Sometimes if the pain is further to the back, they can describe it as a back pain. So, uh, And also, there's also always a, a cultural uh, layer to it too because people describe their symptoms differently. Of course. Yeah. That must be very challenging yeah. then to do what you do. Sometimes it can be, but it's very rewarding. I guess so, yeah. if you can help people. So that's part of what they're mm-hmm. doing with the thrombosis clinic, which I'm just going to mention once again is coming up tomorrow. Uh, what is the big message that you're giving to people at that thrombosis, at the, at the uh, sessions that you're doing with people? Mm-hmm. The, the main message is, uh, as you mentioned, we want um, people to be aware of the symptoms and signs of a thrombosis. Uh, the clots, mnemonic will be helpful. And also, we know that the mnemonic does not cover all signs and symptoms. Hopefully, when we have more time in the sessions, we can go into a little more depth. Because certainly, some people will describe their symptoms as Charlie horse, or they describe uh, the leg sensation as a heaviness in the leg. So people do have different experiences, right. and we can certainly talk more about it in the session. Well, that's why people should sign up for the session. It, the clinic is hosting two free public education sessions coming up tomorrow at 6 and at 7 p.m. at the Cullen Family Lecture Theater. That's room 1477 at St. Paul's. Their space is limited, so they are asking people to register for that. Dr. Wan, thank you so much for that. Thank you. May I just mention the the registration uh, uh, um, process? Uh, We do have a website that people can go to. It's uh, thrombosis.providencehealthcare.org. People can certainly sign up there. And if they like, uh, also they can contact our clinic by phone as well. Our number is 604-806-9455. You did a better job than I could have in describing all that. Thank you so much for your time.